Hello, Internet! This is Matt here to tell you that we in the Drunk and the Ugly are working on another game. It's a game about goblins banished to another world. A world where they're free from their bosses and have all kinds of cool toys. And lots of things that explode if you poke them a couple of times. If you want to play test this game, please send an email to thedrunkandtheugly at gmail.com. You can find the full email address in the show notes. Alright. Yes. Welcome to Harding Cats, Ludo Narrative Diffidence, and your games and players. Who doesn't know what the big scary word is? Good. Uh, by the end of it, the big scary word will probably just be nonsense from neuron inhibition. <laughs> Very simply, and I will probably start referring to it to LND, because it's shorter, it's more concise, you don't need the big scary word. Big scary word breaks down like this. Ludo comes from ludic, which means games. Narrative is narrative, is a story. And dissonance is a disruption between two. Literally, ludonarrative dissonance is when the game mechanics and the story don't match. Everybody, who's played the new Tomb Raider game? A couple people. That is the most clearest example of ludonarrative dissonance ever. The story is, Laura's scared and doesn't want to kill people, and then immediately blows the brains out of like 18,000 people. Because also Uncharted. <laughs> yeah, all four Un- Uncharted's. Uncharted revels in it, because by Uncharted 4, there is a literal ludonarrative dissonance achievement. And I had the quote in my article where he's like, this is the greatest achievement ever. We tried to address the issue, and I said, fuck it, we're going to do it anyways. Just leaning to the swerve. Not a fan of that. But yes, so anybody that's heard of this before, you know, ludonarrative dissonance popped up with an article dealing with Bioshock originally. What happened in that one is that the... Commoner wanted to play the game as an experience of testing Randian objectivism inside of Bioshock's... What's the city? Rapture. Thank you. (laughs) I am frazzled. I'm going to be asking lots of questions from you guys, so feedback is appreciated. He wanted to experience it as a chance to test Randian, um, Randian objectivism. So he played through and wanted to have the ability to choose either Atlas, Fontaine, or, um, Brian... Yeah. Yep. Ryan, good. But as he went through, he realized he what the game wasn't about that, and ultimately the story was just a means of propelling through kind of what he felt was a generic shooter that happened to have an objectivist bent to it. Now, it reads like he didn't quite understand the meaning of Bioshock as it's come to become now, but he did raise an interesting idea that this ludonarrative dissonance inside of it was a big issue in video games that needs to be addressed. And... From a certain viewpoint, he is wrong because he misinterpreted it. But at the same time, he is correct. And this is why this term sucks. Um, so speaking of shooters, there's probably another shooter that more accurately describes. I am not going to talk about that until I get into the nitty gritty of it first. <laughs> if you're a fan of Spec Ops The Line, I apologize. I'm going to rip your game into a thousand pieces. I hate it. That's what it was made for. Uh, but the issue is are, how it was made. You are enjoying it correctly. <laughs> so the issue is I don't enjoy it because it was designed purposefully to not be enjoyed. And I'll get into the... Like the topic, it's very weird. Um, it's very weird and it sucks. We'll get there. The, the issue is that it is wrong because it is a misinterpretation of authorial intent. And it's a misinterpretation of the intended play patterns of the game. However, because, you know, death of the author, all that crap, authorial and and intended play patterns, it does mean that it is also ludonarrative dissonance. Ludonarrative dissonance comes in two forms. The good ones, 
And this is where the rub comes. There are good ones and there are bad ones. Bad ones comes when they don't coincide with the intended play patterns from the designer. Good ones comes where you hear it and it's part of the intended play patterns. There are good, there are bad, but it's a pejorative term, so it doesn't really have a good feeling in any of the video game community. And then, of course, the grayscale is that you can have an intended play pattern to be a ludonarrative dissonance, but it can still fail. Or you can do a bad one that... Or you can not have an intended play pattern that's actually good. Um, well, let's jump in on the favorite game ever. <laughs> jump on the 600-pound gorilla. Sure. Well, the, we, we've already talked about Bioshock Infinite as a bad example. And I guess well, I'll start right here so I can catch my breath. Does anybody think they have an example of ludonarrative dissonance in film, in, not in film, excuse me, in, in video games or in their tabletop games? Because we're going to get to that can of worms later. What's up? Uh, you mentioned uh, Tomb Raider. I thought you were going to refer to the gun parts you find in ancient tombs. <laughs> well, that's another one. <laughs> that's a lesser one. That is that is a lesser one. Bioshock Infinite actually has that. People talk about Bioshock Infinite as an example of ludonarrative dissonance because Booker is an insane murderer running around a peaceful, civ peaceful civilization. Uh, no, that's the point of the character is to go and disrupt a utopian that is actually pretty fucked up and kind of be a, an explosive element into an already kind of decaying machine. What is ludonarrative dissonance is the fact that he goes around licking uh, gin bottles off the beach and picking popcorn up out of the beach when he's not fighting. Like, okay, I'm supposed to go. I'm going to enjoy this beach. Ooh, candy. <laughs> just eating yeah, just eating popcorn out of the trash. Yeah, if you haven't played the game, you're on the beach in this floating city. It's a marvel of engineering, and you look around, and there's popcorn, and you can run over, and you can eat it. And then you can go to the trash can on both sides, and there's gin bottles on each of them, and you're just drinking them out of the trash can. Like... Why? Okay, that's fine. That's that's an easily overlooked one. You can accept it, but it should be noted as it is pretty dissonant to the story of a battled heart and, you know, a man that can do it. What's up? How? Oh, I just want to know how. Why would you place power-ups so that once you've gotten this power-up, it's convenient? <laughs> so, so you'll notice that that is an intended play pattern. That is part of the story. That's kind of where... This story of Metroid is go kill the space aliens and explore the city, but there's no kind of story connecting everything. So that is one that doesn't make sense if there is a story, but it fits as a gameplay element. So it is that that's a great example of why this is such a weird term. It does fit. It does appear on the surface, but because the actual story of the game isn't wrapped around the Chozos and kind of their culture, it's more of a... You know, depending on the game. It also is like, when you look at Metroid and Super Metroid, this is from an earlier era where a lot where things were a lot more abstract. And there's, of. yeah, abstraction. That is a great example, though. Thank you for doing that. Uh, we'll do these two, and then I'll jump in on the other one. You on the left first. Okay. Um, in Fallout 4, like, in, like I'm going to display the open story beat, but in Fallout 4 it opens up, mm -hmm. and you're supposed to be finding your kit. Mm -hmm. But you can go off for... The majority of your playtime in that game, forever, <laughs> when you're supposed to, you would think that there's some urgency there, and mm -hmm. yet there's really nothing that really enforces that at all. Yeah, it's that Shenmue 2 thing. I need to avenge my father, but also first I'll collect these toys. And go bowling. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, and that's that's again, that's another one. That's the issue. That's kind of an underlying undercurrent of sandbox games. There's always immediacy, but I need to go bold. I need to collect all the karaoke figures. I need to do all these things. It's low level. And this is this is the one I'm going to come up with eventually is like video games are really hard to talk about because you only you only see bad examples talked about. You only see the ones that are like Tomb Raider or arguably our favorite thing. Um, but the good ones kind of go away. Because they, they're like, oh, it's just a great game. Until you kind of look into what it's doing. And it's like, oh, this is actually a good example of breaking narrative mechanic, uh, narrative gameplay mechanics to fix it. In the major ways. Um, that's because the best description I can give is video games are pottery made in China. M- mass produced pottery. There is a level of machinery and perfection to them. That it's mass produced such a way that no imperfections are allowed. However, tabletops, as we all know, have a much quicker turnover rate, much more hands-on. It's kind of like going and firing up a kiln and making your own pottery. You're gonna you're gonna make a lot of mistakes. They won't be perfect, and sometimes you'll make a mistake that's actually kind of beautiful that you can learn from and replicate and use later. And so that's kind of where the rub is, and why I wanted to share it here is talk to a bunch of academics about video game side of it. I want to talk to and present it to the role-playing game guys because we are all essentially crafters of it and being aware of it you can use that as part of your games if necessary so spec ops um spec ops is a game that has been created and lauded as a as an attempt to critique anyone here not familiar with spec ops the line first all right spec ops the line is a game where you play as a military i colonel It's it's yeah it's joseph conrad's heart of darkness in dubai Um, that's how they sell it. That's how they designed it. That's how they claim they wanted the story to go on the, on the surface. It's another, it's another 2007 Brown military shooter. And Brown is in like, everything looks Brown, not Brown is in like, go kill the terrorist Brown. I had somebody address that for me earlier. I needed to make sure that was addressed correctly. Um, it's literally just, you fight lots and lots and lots of dudes that look like American soldiers until you get to a point, then they stop, then you shoot lots and lots and lots of dudes, you go through some scripted sequences, you have some moral choices, and then you get to the end and you're the monster. Woo! Sorry for the spoilers. Um, yeah, there's ten year old game. They get yeah, they get a, they get around a lot of stuff and they build up they build up this big moment that everybody talks about by the conceit that you're fighting uh, you're fighting basically deserters. Um, people that went rogue and kinda like Decided they wanted to take over the city. A la Colonel Conrad, this is a sandstorm has destroyed most most of Dubai, and the the person in charge here came in to do relief effort, went nutty, and took over. And you're going to be the hero and bring back this rogue agent. I'm the best ever. Subversion. Now, the, the issue with this comes from... There's a specific moment in the game, which is the which is the big moment where you're supposed to realize that you're the bad guy. And th- there's there's much deeper levels. I'll probably end up writing a big old academic article, or maybe even a book on this, if people even care about it. <laughs> throw throw another one on the pile. Another one on the pile. Yes, people love it. I'm gonna get into an argument. Yeah, there's it was a my moment PhD. in the game where it's really amped you up into I'm the hero. I'm taking out these. I'm taking out these evil American soldiers who have t- tried to take over the thing, and it sets it up by there's this point where in like a lot of Call of Duty games, 
You have uh, you have this moment where you're you have total dominion. You can kill all these guys without any kind of without any kind of repercussions. Um, and you and you're pretty sure you're supposed to because you've been fighting Americans the whole time. And whoops, turns out they were actually the good guys, and you killed a bunch of civilians. It's called the white phosphor scene. You can look it up. What happens is you go and you sit and you try to cross a bridge and you see there's a whole bunch of there's a, a platoon or something on the bridge with tanks. And then you try you, you cannot descend. So you go to a drone or a UAV. I can't remember exactly. It's a mortar and you shoot a, you shoot like a camera on a parachute. You shoot on a camera on a parachute shoot to see everything. And as you go through, you drop white phosphorus on the enemies up until the bridge where the tanks are. Um, you can and. When you see what's in the trench where the tanks are covering, it's super enemies. Ones that are heavily armored, the ones that you cannot attack, ones that basically are huge, huge resources draining on top of the tank. You drop it on the tank, the tank explodes, and the phosphorus fills up the trench. You descend down your position, you walk through all these people on fire, still alive, still covered completely. Uh, You go to where the tanks are, the bridge has been destroyed, you go down into the trench, and surprise, it wasn't enemies, it is actually refugees. And they aren't only on fire, they look like some hellscape of uh, the burning of Dresden. And to the point where you go to the very end and there's a woman burned, staring up in the sun with a single god ray as she holds her child dead. And then they decide to go, this isn't our, we didn't do it, that's your fault. And I don't say you the character, you You the the player. player. And as you look, every single instance in this game that tries to subvert the actions of players. There's a a literal point near the end of the game where uh, you meet Conrad and he says, you played this, or you're doing this because you wanted to be the hero. And he's not talking to the character, he's talking to you. And every single time it addresses you, it does the player. Now, this can be viewed as, you know, ludonarrative dissonance. This can be viewed as an attempt to shut down and address it however and this is where the kind of subjectivity comes on the the issue is that there's another game that has done another questioning of the genre just as well without ever addressing the player until it was necessary Mm -hmm. Uh, and you can undertale anybody played that yeah so undertale is one where you play and you don't realize they're addressing you because you just embody the character until they separate you out at the very end and even then when they address you as a character it's it's ultimately not important. It's not negative until you choose to be the absolute monster ever. The 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 issue is is that in Undertale, according to research, the the there is a cohesion between players and what happens in what they talk about in research is that you can end up being one of the negatives is that you're driving. You don't want to you want to embody a character, but you don't want to drive. So with the character in Undertale, you are embodying them until you're forcefully shot out to realize oh son of a what happened and you get a new one yeah i think i think it's pretty clear but you want to explain piloting the character versus being a character and that's what i was about to say and then piloting or driving you can get it you can get issues with spec ops where your character literally does the exact opposite of what you're doing so like you're gonna go and it's like i'm gonna go help people nope Nope, 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 and then you're split out completely. Um, this can be do, d- done for good effect. I mean, you've seen games where you're playing, and then all the character, all of a sudden, the character's like, "No, I can't do that. I'm too tired." That's kind of the car auto correcting. 
Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to go there. There's a bunch of chairs in the way. And you can see a negative version of this if you played Persona Five. If you played Persona Four, you you hang out all day, and then you're like, I'm too tired. I'm going to go to bed. If you play Persona Five, you're you want to keep doing stuff, and then Morgana goes, No, you need to go to sleep. And you're like, No, cat, I've got things to do. And you you just hate the cat because you know they, <laughs> they they've taken your ability to drive the character and created a roadblock. But going back to Spec Ops, the the issue lies in that on top of an intended play pattern of subversion is fine. An attempt to emotionally manipulate a character is fine. An attempt to emotionally manipulate a player is subversive if done improperly. And this, and the game uses a lot of film techniques to make it very obvious you are a, a monster. The issue lies in that the intended play pattern of the game is both good and bad. It's one of those where the game came out and they're like, we're doing Conrad. And then it's a very bad shooter. But it had a unintended as per discuss an unintended play pattern of creating a subversion and people loved it and then it was flipped to go oh this is an intended play pattern and they leaned into it so hard to reveal that they're just writing it now and that yeah. the entire they, they just made a shooter tried to get a little controversy it blew up and then they leaned into it saying oh this was it the entire time well also it's it's one of those things where you say leaning into it the white phosphorus scene um there's no other way to do it aside from aside from the the, the way that you have to do it if you try to if you try to go down you get shot to death if you try to fight anybody from cover and be strategic there's an infinite amount of guys if you choose not to blow up the tanks, you cannot proceed until you blow up the tanks. If you shoot beyond the tanks, because it's a thing going it's over. Mortar, yeah. If it's a mortar, the, the camera can shoot beyond the tanks. If you sh if you literally wait till the tanks are at the very back and you push forward to try and maybe find a way around it, it blows up the tanks and kills everybody. There is no way to do to have a moral choice in the game and ultimately all the moral choices in the game mean nothing. So another one is like there's two sni there's a bunch of snipers trying to hold up two refugees and you have to choose. Go to the snipers, instantly die. Try to save a refugee, refugee dies. Try to save the informant who might have information, the refugee dies. So all, all always the refugee dies. Now this can be viewed as like funneling for like we do in GMing, but ultimately in a game that's supposed to be subversive, there needs to be agency of the player. And the only agency that actually happens in the game is at the very end. The cops come, uh, the cops, the military police come, they see you, you have a gun, you can sit and not do anything, you can shoot people and die, or you can shoot everybody and become the new, you know, bad guy. Yeah. That's the only form of agency in the game, and that's the only time you're allowed to figure out and kind of are allowed to have agency in the discussion of the nature of the games. And I'm not going to say necessarily, like, um... Having been through this discussion a bunch of times with Travis, I'm not going to say necessarily that Spec Ops is the is is a terrible game, but it was overlauded because for many people this was their first experience with this kind of rug pulling. If it like it's and also it 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 had it was in a perfect era. This was it was um, it was pointing out the problems with military shooters. It may have been done a little ham handedly, but that was kind of the thing. People were tired of military shooters. People were wondering, like, people. Th there were there was a lot of problems with military shooters from that era, and on top of that, this did something that was novel. Yeah. So when I say I dislike it, I dislike it because I played the game and I threw it away. And one thing you should never tell a player in an interactive in instant is stop playing my game, especially if you paid sixty five dollars for it. The solution to playing an interactive thing that you've played for should be to see the end of it, to make a decision of yourself if you agree with it or not, especially after actions. It should never be like, you paid $65. Oh, you didn't like the book? Get rid of it. So at least that's my philosophy as a designer. Um, so, Which is all subjective again. Yeah. Well, So 
So it does have a lot of merit, but we need to look back and recognize where the merit has become bad. Now I say all of this to move on to the reason everybody's here is role-playing games. Role-playing games take the idea of a designer, a narrative, a mechanic, and and a player and add so many levels of complexity to it. Because not only do you have a disconnect between player and system, you have disconnect between player and GM, player story and mechanical story, GM story and mechanical story, mechanical system and narrative, there's an infinite number of complexities to it that that can fail horribly. And I'm sure everybody's had a story. Does anybody have one they'd like to share of what they think would be a example of one of these many forms of dissonance that might pop up? And that's the point. You don't think there is any. You, you on the other hand, had an idea. It was the first iteration of Mutants and Masterlines. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We were playing. The one issue we had is we could do more damage to somebody by accident than intentionally attacking them because of the ground rules of the game. Yes, yeah, so that that is a... Me- had, there was a set damage cat due to your level early on, so mm-hmm. if you tripped next to me and pushed somebody off the building, you could kill them, but if you attacked them and they fell off, they wouldn't. <laughs> so yeah, that, that's one of a systemic issue that does then affect the narrative yeah. of the game. So like, I want to go punch people. You know, okay, well, I'm going to have them trip. Oh, you, you won them. So, like, it, it completely alters it. And there will be numerous examples of this. Oh, yeah, what's up? Okay. I run a fifth grade at school campaign. Okay. Okay. It was a lot of fun. And the first time we played, however, I decided that to make things simple, the dungeon was going to be in a volcano. Mm-hmm. And so right there is dissonance between your narrative, your story, and then add to it the distance between the character's ideas and that. What we'll eventually discuss, and hopefully you'll learn in this, is that RPGs have actually had this conversation so much we are inoculated to it and just realize that it's a part of the thing to deal with. A good GM has to deal with a system breaking and not fitting their rules or breaking the system to do it or having a player wanting to break the system to do a cool thing for the story or having a cool story thing by a player get disrupted by the system. Like we have all done this so many times we don't realize it. You will discover in time that the dice hate drama. Yeah. (laughs) And it's, it's one of of these things like I was telling the last one for Lovecraft is like there's so many things I'm trying to get a PhD to discuss role playing games and, and RPGs as interactive mediums because there's a lot of things that RPGs have done as a community that haven't been recorded but are kind of like oral traditions that solve a lot of issues that are happening in video games they just don't know it yet so for instance um, I'm going to talk about a bad example, and it's the easiest bad example you can think of, is I'm going to run Knights Black Agents, where you're supposed to hunt down vampires, and in Windy City, Chicago, or is there a... There's, there's, not really, there's, there's not really a setting, it's just burn spies versus vampires. Burn spies versus vampires, and I'm going to use that to make a game about World War I establishment of uh, the Red Cross, with no supernatural elements. That doesn't work, that's never going to work, that's just... It's so wrong, it sounds dumb. And it was really hard to come up with a bad example as a GM. Just like, I can't say this. This sounds so wrong. Um, 
Of course, a good example, again, there's a little subjectivity to this, is like intentionally breaking the rules to do something. Playing Del- uh, playing Call of Cthulhu or any sanity effect game where you know that the world is kind of always in trouble. Going home to your daughter's birthday, Sweet 16, buying her a car, and then rolling a sand check because you realize this is useless. She's probably not even going to make it till 20 due to just the nature of the world and the fact that nothing really matters. Like, that's breaking the system for the narrative purpose of kind of keeping your character grounded and not too high up. So that's another example of it. And then there's other smaller examples. Does anybody think they have, now that I've given context, any examples that they would like to share? Well, he has one, but it's cheating to call on him because I talked to him for about an hour earlier today. <laughs> so... Right, you in the back. Yeah. Um, my players and I had several games mm-hmm. and virtually every single time, up with everybody playing every scene as quickly as possible, really trying to interact with as little stuff as possible because the theme of the game is kind of the independent of fear. Mm-hmm. So, most of the players really just thinking they're going to die and trying to get away from the situation. Interesting. Uh, so, yeah, your players have been well trained in the, in the arts of the chaosium. Yeah. <laughs> do not look at anything. Do not touch anything. Do not go anywhere. Stay home. Stay in your house. Helen Keller is the greatest Call of Cthulhu character ever. Oh. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's an example of, like, your characters have actually learned and been so entrenched in the system that they, they are following patterns and it's disrupting your story. But that's also, and that's one where you have to, in order to address it and weigh out both options you should have broken it so that they ha- you could have broken it i won't say should i won't tell you what to do uh you could have broken it to to give them a reason to run away or give them more stability to come back and that that and it, that that literal balance between what the mechanics do and what the story kind of needs or wants to do is ludonarrative dissonance at its nutshell yeah. and there's this kind of I know Call of Cthulhu and the issues surrounding it are reasons that a bunch of different sh- systems in Gumshoe exist. Like, in Fear itself, I think they discovered too many players are running away. So every character has what's called a risk factor that makes them, that gives them incentive to act like an idiot in a horror movie. Yeah. And like Delta Green, for instance, has a new one in the new system called Bond, so you can push your insanity onto them to fight on. Because, you know, if you play exactly as written, you're going to go crazy, you're going to run away, and probably the monster's going to kill you, or if, you know, Cthulhu shows up and eats you just to end the game really quickly. And then Trail of Cthulhu, you might not even get to the plot because you can't make your investigation rolls, <laughs> so you can't even find the plot, and you're just moseying around a town. Gosh, yeah. So then Trail, you get the clue systems that you automatically get the stuff you need to get to where you can go, so then you can get to the plot. And one of the, thi- one of the subversive elements you could do, has anybody played a gumshoe or a trail game in general? Okay. Those are a resource management system. You get a character with health and a set number of points to do things. You it's, get the yeah. yeah it's you, more deterministic than Call of Cthulhu. Yeah. You you get to ch- you go and like, is there anything here? Cool. I'm gonna spend a point to find something better or something useful. But you're always running out of points. What would be a break in the system is like, oh, you found blank to restore your points because you only restore points on sleep. So like that could be one of like a grindy game. Just. People are too invested in trying to figure out what's going on, and there's nothing there. And, like, you've scraped the bottom of the barrel so hard that, like, your, your fingernails are hurting. It's like, uh, go to Denny's. Have a Grand Slam witch, and as you're sitting there discussing, everybody get uh, one point on search gun and, uh, I don't know, your favorite skill. Like, you got to break the system so that they can actually have a chance. 
if you want the story to move beyond, we got stymied in someone's apartment because there was a divot in the tub. <laughs> couple, couple examples. One, one comes to mind about the skill thing is, I just leveled up and I'm ready to level up my character and we've just been dungeon delving and things like that. So I'm going to take six ranks in horseback riding. Yeah, that's a, it's the classic, I just killed 20 goblins, and now I know Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, and, and that's a lower level of dissonance that we're all used to, and we all go, all right, We've hang on. We've accepted it as a gameplay abstraction. Yeah, it, and that's kind of what it is, is we call them ex- abstractions. We, we've learned to work around them because we do theater of the mind instead of a physical one, and when you have to deal with actual physical, everything needs to be measured. You, you can't abstract. You have to figure out a way to fix it. Um, the, other, the other one I'm reminded, sorry, is Tracy Hickman's example in XDM is they're going through a dungeon room by room. The rogue is spending his time, blah, blah, blah. He gets the door open. They fight the battle. They get the treasure to go to the next room. And again, the rogue does this, and Tracy Hickman was just getting, this is incredible. So he just goes, barbarian character smashes the door. They fight the monster move on to the next room. Same outcome, different route to get to. Hmm. And it's just the story, he was t- tired of this rogue spending an hour for every door trying to figure out if it had traps, it had locked, locked. No, I'm just going to walk up the door and smash it. Yeah, it's your, it's your, uh, it's, what is it, a Temple of Doom. I can't remember what the, the, the real bad Gary Gygax scenario. Oh. It's just, it's just the rogue is obviously is a master thief. I'm Tomb on of... my hands and feet, moving every five feet, checking for traps. Tomb of Horrors. Tomb of Horrors, that's what yeah. it's called. No, Not and... Temple of Doom, that's something else. <laughs> <laughs> that's another <laughs> issue. Well, I mean, it does have the rock. And then, and, and then what you're showing is that there's actually internal play pattern inconsistency inside of systems. Because right. the, the, the barbarian's internal play pattern is kick the door, cut the head off, drink some mead, repeat. And the rogue's internal play, uh, internal play patterns is check for traps, steal everything, stab one, uh, someone in the back if there's a fight, stab someone in the back if I get caught, repeat. Or sell loot, repeat. Yeah, not and not just that, but the outcome of each room is exactly the same. And that, and that, Either way, there's a monster waiting waiting there with his axe ready to whack you sure. as soon as you come through the door. Which is why you need to, you know, and then that, that goes to pacing and dungeon construction yeah. and realizing that different patterns, you know, we have this tangled web of stuff. Find out where the patterns can cohese and where you can actually highlight other ones. So we got about... 30 minutes left. Um, I'm going to move on to the heady part of this because, you know, it hasn't been heady enough. Uh, the ways to introduce ludonarrative dissonance into your games and highlight it for your players to so that they're okay to break system or narrative for it to work. Now, I say this is heady because I got to give two examples to explain it. And it's really weird because they sound like awful games, but they're actually really good if they had done properly. We, uh, one of my buddies played a game that was a combination Psychonauts and Persona. You go into people's heads, subconscious, and you also had monsters that represent, they were essentially your, uh, your shadows in Persona 3 and 4, um, given shape, and they were your friends. And by friends, I mean absolutely atrocious monsters you should never listen to, but dumb teenagers listen to them anyway, so bad things happen. But... From the Psychonauts part of it, people got nightmares. Like anybody else did, a bad day, you have a nightmare. Um, and what that represented is the subconscious kind of came forth, kind of beat up the person internally for some self-flagellation, and they were better the next day. Unless you had the power, then the self-flagellation actually killed you. So what ended up happening is one of the characters went into a nightmare, and we had to go save them. And the character's issue was that they were... They needed attention. They just absolutely needed to be the center of attention 100% of the time. And so what ended up happening is we played a game where 
We were in a vast white space being monologued at and only stopping at very small points that had a swing set, a bar counter, my doll. And as we're going, there are stories and monologues being told. And it sucked. It was so boring. It was a four hour, it was like a five hour session that was an hour. It was like three and a half hours of monologuing. And then we got to the internal part where they, they are sitting there getting berated by people around them. You know, why are you like this? Blah, 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 blah. And we stopped them and we fought them for the last hour and a half and it was done. And everybody's like, I never want to play this type again. Please make a good one. And I was like, this was awesome. Because the person strived for attention. Ultimately, the subconscious, what's the opposite and what would keep somebody who's striving for attention from running away? A vast wasteland of nothingness. And what would keep you from going into that person, them real, them actually being the most boring person ever? So what ended up happening was the players and the characters were able to actually have a cohesion of purpose of, oh my god, this is boring, can I leave? And what ended up happening is we could actually have shortcutted everything. We could literally have just been like, hello, are you there? And if she would have responded, we would have popped right there. But we didn't know that was the play pattern, and we didn't know that was possible because we were like, we were... We, as players, were kind of forcefully trained to don't interrupt the GM, don't interrupt the monologue unless your GM allows you to shoot somebody in the middle of a monologue. I've done that before. Um, <laughs> it was fun. It worked out great. Um, but this time was not allowed to do that and kind of experience it as you go on. So what ended up happening is we made a what he said was about an hour game because uh, about two hour game of like we were expecting you to take like two of these trips get bored yell out for help and then find them didn't happen and turned it into a five-hour session um and and so after the game everybody's like oh why well well next time just cut it down so that doesn't happen he's like that's the i eventually had to do that because it was just too long and i was like well next time you know I think my character was coming up next because it really affected him what was going on. I was like, well, don't worry. Next time, I'll give him some notes on what to do to kind of shortcut it. My character came up, and my character's nightmare was he's a very black and white person. Like, here's the situation. Here's what I did. Here's what they did. Who was correct? So they went through a combination Mütter Museum slash uh, the, the Wax Museum, Madame Tussauds Wax Museum. So you just kind of walk through his life, and you see all these things. And it was just boring because it was just like, oh, what's this? It's an argument about cereal. Whatever. Here, what's this? It's an argument about change. Whatever. And then they were just like, we run. We don't care about anything. We run. We run. We run. We run. He's like, okay, cool. You get to fight. Done. Took about three hours. And then, then we went on to the other half of the game, like any Persona game, and hung out and dealt with things and stuff like that. At the end, he's like, so was that better? They're like, we kind of had to run through it, but yeah, it was better. You, you made it short so we didn't have this infinite vastness. It's like, okay, cool. Uh, did you realize the secret? Like, what are you talking about? It's like, well, if you'd actually look, they're all in kind of, they're, they're kind of a Pepper's ghost, if anybody knows what that is. A Pepper's ghost, I have a degree in digital media. Sorry, it's technical terms. Raise your hand if I say anything that you don't understand. Uh, I say 36 minutes into a panel. Uh, <laughs> Pepper's ghost is essentially if you put a, pex, a piece of plexiglass at like a 45 degree angle with a projector underneath, it looks like a actual picture. Uh, has anybody been to the Haunted Mansion? In you, Disney World. Yeah. In Disney World or Disneyland? The, uh, the, the dinner bus. scene. Okay. The dinner scene is a Pepper's ghost. One of the oldest oldest peppers ghost ever and if you actually look 
correctly and you're a correct angle, you can look down over the side and see the projector hitting the glass and then, you know, reflecting back up. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it ended up being a Pepper's ghost of like the moment you touch it, it breaks and it actually shows what's going on. And there's just like a pathway down that leads straight to there. Because the, the idea is the kid doesn't know, uh, the, the character doesn't know Gray very well just because of issues. And it's just like, whatever, that you, you don't understand things correctly. We, whatever, we're going to get to you now. And so it was one of those that he attempted to create a highlight in a way for them to interact, but they didn't catch it. And so that's where the new thing is, is like, how do you create moments of dissonance, purposeful dissonance, purposeful attempts to both get a cohesion in player and character, but allow them to break predefined play patterns that they've come to understand. Has anybody got an example of that? Well, he does, but I'm going to wait for him until the end. Does anybody else have, like, an idea or a question? Does anybody have an example of such a situation where you've got cohesion between character and player for something that might be negative or bad, and you were able to prompt them in such a way to act outside of that cohesion to make it better so that the the thing reacted in a way that is counter to what they're expecting in the story, the player's personal ideas, or that is counter to mechanical benefits but is actually part of the intended play that you're designing for currently running a campaign set in the austro-hungarian empire it's like a relatively <laughs> historical campaign <laughs> and uh the, the players were uh attempting to go into a tomb of a person who recently died who was an egyptologist who was like obsessed with egypt and went to pyramids all the time and the players seeing it's a role-playing game they see to a tomb, it's obsessed with there's going to be traps everywhere. Of course there's going to be traps everywhere. So they're going in expecting all of these traps. There's no traps. <laughs> yeah. It's Croatia. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so they wound up taking a lot longer, and then the cops got called, and then because they're breaking into a tomb, and if they were just in and out, it wouldn't have been a big deal, but they spent so long checking for traps that they wind up having to fight the police. And see that, and again, I, I, I postulate questions that seem completely ridiculous and that you don't know about, and then that's actually a great example. Like, yeah, the, mine is a, mine's a little heady because it's a weird one that kind of introduced it, to, and that it's kind of a super hard abstraction of it, but it's literally like, uh, we're going to take five hours to do it. You hear the cops, or, you know, <laughs> an alarm goes off, hurry up, you're taking forever. <laughs> and like uh, it kind of harkens back to kind of the point of this is RPGs are rife with these situations. It's just we don't have terminology for it and we don't have a community to experience and share it. We just know it from individuals. And if we can get somebody to sit down and explain it, we can actually kind of show it to the world. So does anybody have any questions or were you asking something? No. Oh, I, I thought I heard something. Uh, we'll do you, sir. Um, so, uh, I've always, uh, I usually have, but pretty much every group that I have wants to play, cleric, paladin, and I've always had deities become more involved in the process, and it helps to guide them in a way that I'm breaking the system a little bit by allowing the deity to have that omnipotence that comes with knowing what's happened. Mm -hmm. And, like, he's not always personally invested in what's going on. But, like, I allow the clerics to really start exploring, like, asking the deity questions in a way that allows them to view it differently. Like, and it kind of gets them involved in what's happening in these, and, like, and sometimes it'll be something, like, if they're literally not paying attention to it, and then the clerics just, like, 
going nuts and he's just all like screaming to the sky or something trying to figure out what's going on because he's bored then i'll have the deity actually shove them in a direction sometimes like shine a light sometimes mm. something something minute but it brings their attention in the direction and then they start then their brains start working and they start grinding the gears into where i need to go and see that's a great example of using the intended patterns of play a cleric's going to talk to their god and then using that to kind of break the narrative and the system to help them in situations that they might not feel comfortable doing things in. Uh, but then you get into the, like, you know, do you, do you have an ur-cultist or you have somebody that doesn't believe in God and they're like, I don't believe in you! It's like, well, too bad, we're going! Uh, Kevin. I know him, that's why I said his name, don't feel bad. <laughs> Can you provide, like, uh opposite like you know obviously you're using a game to tell a narrative but is there anything like ludo narrative resonance i guess where there's a unique sort of combination of narrative and game so that's that's one of the issues with the word is it's it, it's janet murray is one of my professors and she hates the fact that you say non-linear because nonlinear is designing for something negative. She calls it unilinear or multilinear. Ludonarrative dissonance is a fine word, but it implies that there's another side. There is no other side because the other side is just relative relative games. It, it's literally just there's a cohesion between the system and the story. I ran a D&D campaign and, and uh, give me a D&D &D setting. I blanked. Shadow Sylvester. Ravenloft. Ravenloft. There you go. I heard one that, and, I, and that one stuck. Uh, you're, you're, you're running a game in Ravenloft. You have Ravenloft characters. They're from Ravenloft. They deal with Ravenloft, and everything is good in Ravenloft. Like, you, 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 <laughs> everything's good in Ravenloft. Just like it's supposed to be. Yeah, and that, 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 that's resonance. Like, that, about, that works. Uh, use, use fate. You run a pulp adventure with it. Boom. That's what it's meant for. Now, there are certain ways, because, like, anything to do with frequencies. There are some that work better so like monster hearts mo monster hearts really what monster hearts is real good at, at being its genre oh right excuse me i was confused there's some that resonate better with the story you're trying to sell so dumb dumb supernatural romance teens go find monster hearts and play it read up on safe hearts because it can get a little hinky but like that does it better than most everything but you could also do that in D&D &D if you just want to have monstrous characters or even the monsters be a bunch of horny teenagers trying to do things. <laughs> It'd be weird. It'd be weird. But uh, it, but that is the resonance. Like, a good game has it. Some games are better because they, they resonate better together. Some, some games are better because they better explain what they're trying to do. And the, yeah. And the system's better built to try and do the thing. Right. Uh, there was a question over here. There's two of them now. I'm going to get... The guy behind you, and then I'll get to you. Um, can you give an example about how this distance might apply to group games where people aren't really playing a role specifically, but they're just trying to get the end? To what game? Four games. games. So the so the issue is this is kind of a story centric idea. A board game has emergent storytelling inside of it. The dissonance might come from somebody doing and I like somebody getting to in character. Like a board game is competitive because you need to win. You know, experience the fun, but it can always be boiled down to it's a game you need to win. That's also side star. Let's put an asterisk and go to a footnote. Um, ludist versus narrativists. Ludist are the idea that a game can never have a story because it's a game. Narrativists think you can have games and stories, or stories and games. So the idea that a game is a game is a game is a game and can't have a story would then disqualify it of having 
ludonarrative dissonance because yeah. there's no narrative to it. There is that. Uh, there are those those like five games that are story and mechanics. Mm-hmm. The one where you're like trying to pack trains full of stuff. Like um, we. That's not. I don't know if that's exactly ludonarrative dissonance, but that, it's a, uh, that is that. That's a game that's just designed to make you feel bad. For that is that is an excellent example of ludonarrative resonance. That's a resonance. That that's one of the dissonance that becomes resonance because it's do this. Cool. Oh, you were loading Jews into the train to take the concentration camp. I didn't know that. I wouldn't have done that. Well, that's the point. Congratulations, you're a good Nazi. Uh, him and then you. I hope that answered your question, by the way. Yes. Um, first, I want to say, I, I like your example of uh, your players just running away from everything. Sort of resonated with me because I was recently running first uh, Strahd, and we kind of hit a point where like everyone was so terrified of everything that was happening in Barovia that they just they was just paralysis all the time. They'd spend an hour talking about which door to open um, until we finally, in the last couple of sessions, were like, "Fuck it, let's just do action party." And action party was we have an idea, let's just do it because we're gonna die anyway. Hey, you so, should give me notes. We're, 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 we're my podcast is doing Curse of Innistrad. We're about to go meet Mauer. You should give me your notes. <laughs> <laughs> My guy's a ranger. He's going to be fine. I just want to help the other ones. Anyways. So, yeah, so that, that really resonated with me, that, that idea of, like, when do the players play the, uh, the game cautiously because that's, like, the smart thing to do, or uh, so it makes sense for their characters to do that. So in that sense, it's aligned with the, like, like the story and the mechanics and the way they're playing through it are aligned. But in the other sense, like, they're playing characters, and the characters are irrational. People don't behave rationally. They don't think through everything. Right, paralysis by analysis. And so, yeah, uh, exactly. So we've been talking a lot of GM problems. There's actually a level of that in players, too. So, like, what you're talking about is there is a dissonance between the mechanics of what I should do, myself as a player, and what my character should do, and what the story is telling me to do. And that's another one that... As GMs, our job is to help them overcome that and just talk to them. Be like, listen, the mechanics say this, the narrative is telling you this, and your character might do this and you want to do this. Just trust me for a moment. Trust me. Or do you have an idea of a way to work around that? We were playing Curse of Strahd in Innistrad from NTG. Uh, We have a monster hunter who hates everything from Stensia Barovia and... uh, absolutely positively despises anybody that raises the dead um (laughs) he's a necromancer it's a great team we love each other we've we all plan to kill each other at the end of the game um uh so what ended up happening is like i need he stopped uh our our fighter stopped in care uh, the conversation between the two is like, everybody, I need a reason not to kill him now. I don't want to kill him. I like his character. I like what he brings to the setting. My character needs some type of end to not go nutty. That can be how you help them and just bringing discussion to the table. Now, you have to, much like introducing a uh, introducing the narrative distance to a game you have to make sure that they're understanding that at any point you can go go time out i don't know what to do somebody help like i need a reason to continue and so that's a good way to deal with that one because everybody has an experience you all have a mental mapping of what your character is even and it's colored by your perception so you can give a lot of different angles to fill out what might work and then one of those might just resonate perfectly or it might be two or three of them resonate that you can combine into a new idea 
I think for that one, what we ended up saying was like, I'm just going to use criminals. They're not good people. And it's just like, that's fine. That's fine. Criminals aren't good people. You can use their zombies. It's like... <laughs> I think we have one and, more question, right? Yeah, one more question, and then that's it. Was a, was oh, right? you guys actually brought it up already. And cool. Yeah, okay. man, what's up? Alright, so my question is sort of first of that. What happens when instead of your players being human character and your characters therefore clashing, mm-hmm. your character your players being too out of character. Is there a point in a campaign I have run? No, save fifth grade. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There might be a reason. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're cognizant. Where I am trying to set up urgency, but because I haven't done that well enough, the PCs out of time just said, you know what? Let's stop doing the dungeon. Why don't we head to the nearest town and I'll see what's up there? <laughs> So there's yeah. a there's a there's a couple different ways to deal with this. There is a litany of ways to deal with this. There's a lot, of, yeah. No, F- first there's infinity ways to deal with this. The, right. the first and foremost, you are cognizant of the fact it might be that they're fifth graders and they're uncomfortable in their own skin, much less trying to be other people. That is perfectly understandable, and let them know that's fine. And like, don't don't shame them. I guess is the best way to phrase it because it, it's we're still, fine. We're still locked in at thirty. It's all right. Uh, what you can do though is let them like. You can try the piece of candy idea of like if you do a good job as being your character, you can get an extra experience point, or you might get a bonus to a roll, and that'll give them the incentive to try. And then usually it's it's you know you you'll you'll learn this eventually. A lot of people that don't like to, to characterize just feel nervous about it, and if you can get a, gun, a bunch of people that characterize together, it's almost infectious. One nice thing about the Eclipse Face system is they offer an extra experience point for the best role player. So, like he's saying, give some incentivization to do what you need to do so we can keep playing as a group. And giving them that reward for... It also keeps them mindful of what was I doing in-game that could have earned that, or what were you guys doing that made it better than what I was doing. The other way to do... Oh, alternately, if they want to go up to town and see what's going on, maybe they go in a tavern. Maybe you would prepare to counter with a bunch of orcs. Maybe when they're in the tavern, a bunch of real big burly dudes walk in. They're kind of <laughs> orc-like in stats. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, you, as a GM, we kind of have to adapt to what our players like. Like, we want to tell a story, but sometimes I just want to kill things. Like, sometimes in the Innistrad games, I want to be diplomatic. I can't. I rolled a seven on my charisma. My dog has higher charisma than me. Um... <laughs> <laughs> it's it, it's it's actually true. The wolf, which is absolutely hated in the area, has higher charisma than me. I look like a I look like a murder hobo um, that lived in the woods. Uh, but sometimes you just want to kill things. Like I, there was just one day I came home, I had a bad day, and I let my wolf just eat somebody. It was fun. Uh, it was a side it was a side scenario. Ran into a bunch of bad druids. Our our swashbuckler said, "On my honor, you can leave." And me and the the monster hunter, you're noticing a pattern. Uh, we're like, hey, no, these guys are bad. We're going to go. And so while everybody is licking their wounds, uh, we stalk them into the woods. I shot a silence arrow so they didn't hear us coming. My dog ate one of them. I shot one of them back of the head. And then the other one got up and strangled him to death with the uh, the cursed noose in the Strahd campaign. Oh, my God. <laughs>
We were having a bad day and we wanted to let steam off. It happens. Don't let it, don't judge me. Um, so that's about it. The only thing I didn't get to cover is, while the cleric's a great job of uh, allowing you to understand intentional play patterns and bringing in ludonarrative dissonance, try and think of a way that you can, in my example, it wasn't obvious in the intended play patterns how to break it figure out a way to do that with your gms like the simplest is hey this is boring is there a way for me to shortcut it and they can give you a hint of like the plexiglass on mine or have you tried asking for help or ask calling out like usually your gm has an idea of what to do and if 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 you're willing to ask to do something They'll adapt and or be willing to roll with it if it's interesting. Because ultimately we're just trying to have interesting events. And it, it, the game doesn't come first and the story doesn't come first. The play comes first. It's the core thing about RPGs. It's trust on the GM side and the player side. 